0: Thank you all very much for coming. My name is George Lawson. I teach international relations here at LSE. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this event on After the Fall, World Order or Disorder After 1989. We have three uh, rather than four speakers with us uh, tonight. We have Jacques Rupnik in the middle from Sciences Po, Mary Calder at the end, and then Mick Cox near me, Unfortunately, uh, Caroline Postelvine was not able to make it because she had a really quite painful sounding accident yesterday, so she wasn't able to travel from Paris, but we wish her well, uh, and we'll try and uh, cope without her. Uh, the, I'm going to introduce the broad sort of themes and background ideas that we had when we came up with the rationale uh, for this evening's event, uh, and then I'll hand over to the three main speakers. With what's going on in Ukraine, at the moment, it's a rather prescient moment to think about the ongoing influence of the Cold War and the events of 1989 and to what extent they remain a live debate and a live set of issues for us to wrestle with, and that's the kind of thing we're going to be doing tonight. Uh, We also wanted to speak to two uh, publications, or actually three publications if we include Jack's book, but we'll do that in a moment. I've got two with me at least I can... Uh, talk to. one is a journal that Mick is one of the editors of, which is uh, the Journal of Cold War History," which has done a, a virtual special issue, which you probably can't see, um, but I can assure you this is advertising. It's called "The End of the Cold War 25 Years on." It's a bunch of articles that you can download for free, uh, which deal a lot with uh, the events that led up to, to the end of the Cold War and various aspects of it, some theoretical, some empirical. Mick will talk a little bit more about that uh, when he gets a chance to speak. Uh, the second is a book that Mick and I with a colleague Chris Arn Brewster edited a few years ago, which you might be able to see at least that it's a natty shade of purple. Uh, which is called uh, The Global 1989 Continuity and Change in World Politics. And there are two questions that Mick and, I and the contributors to that volume try to ask. We couldn't them, but at least we asked them, that stand as background to the type of conversation we're hoping to instigate tonight. The first one was thinking about 1989 as a world event. To what extent do we understand it as a world historical event? Where does it place amongst the other landmark dates that we uh, consider to be important because they tell us something fundamental about the shape and patterns of world politics itself? And one of the things we did in that book was was interrogate, if you like, the time of 1989, the world historical uh, prescience of 1989 and argue that it depended a bit on where you started counting. In the discipline that I'm most familiar with international relations, 1989 was a big deal because it was the end of the 1945 system. If we understood that as the Cold War, we understood that as bipolarity there was a systemic shift from bipolarity to unipolarity and, and different logics that flowed from that. In the area that I'm actually most specialised in, revolutions 1989 also had a, a slightly more curious legacy In France, François Furet said that it it demolished the myth of 1789, the myth of revolution itself, as some type of landmark and momentous event that could hasten historical progress along. Uh, Others uh, compared it to the springtime of nations in 1848, a more gradual move towards liberalisation and democratisation. And Mary will talk a little bit, I think, about uh, that variant Uh, From 1848, perhaps the constitutional revolutions at the beginning of the 20th century in the Ottoman Empire and Iran and China and Russia, Morocco and Mexico and elsewhere. Uh, And then the type of uh, legacies that we've seen since 1989, not least the type of uh, 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 protest movement taking place in Ukraine today and also uh, resemblances in the Arab uprisings and elsewhere. So we tried to think about the various different issue areas or various different temporalities of 1989 as this world historical event, as opening up a pathway to understanding important processes like revolution, or terrorism, or war, whatever it might be. There's also a question about the, if you like, the space of 1989. It depends, your meaning of 1989, how you characterised it depended a lot on where you were situated. Uh, We'll talk a lot about uh, what it meant for the West and for Europe and for the transatlantic relationship Uh, as the evening progresses. But of course in other parts of the world, 1989 either didn't matter very much or had very different connotations. In China, for example, uh, Tiananmen Square Massacre happened on June the 4th, the same day that Solidarity won the landmark elections in Poland. And very different meanings were taken from those simultaneous events. In Korea, the, the, the divide of that particular country was more or less maintained. And if you're in a region like the Middle East, 1989 wasn't much of a punctuation mark at all if you compare it to the, to the type of events the Arab-Israeli conflict has produced that provide a type of historical demarcation for that particular part of the world, 1948, 1967, 1973, 1987, perhaps more recently the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So if you like, if if, if it looked at the time, at least it did to me, perhaps you were all uh, far ahead of me in this, that 1989 was one of these moments of of singularity, of world historical rupture, where it looked very clear what the message was, as the years since then have gone on, I think it's become much more contested, and much more variegated, and it's meaning much more up for grabs. So if we thought there was something clear-cut about 1989, I think 25 years on, we know that that's not the case. And that serves, I think, as some kind of background to our discussions tonight. The second background question is what uh, our our book tried to do was move away from discussion of the causes of 1989, whether it was Gorbachev that won it or the Pope that won it or Reagan that won it or great systemic forces of geopolitics or world capitalism or cultural flows or whatever it might be, and start thinking a bit more about the consequences, many of them unintended. Uh, If there was to be a triumph of uh, market democracy in 1989, that looks, again, far less clear-cut. 25 years later, whether it's uh, come apart through the financial crisis, or whether it's merely come apart through, if you like, the disembedding of the notion that there was something that went hand in hand between capitalism and democracy, not least as capitalism has become instituted and embedded in a range of authoritarian regimes, in East Asia, and Southeast Asia, in the Gulf and other parts of the world, perhaps also in Russia. So that whole question of whether there can be a capitalism without democracy is, I think, not one that people would have Thought in 1989 was likely to be a key question for our times 25 years later. Not only that, they're the side that, one, the Cold War has had a, a pretty hard time of it in many ways, whether it's the internal disputes that have rocked Europe or the type of domestic troubles going on in the United States or in the relationship between those two pillars of the transatlantic alliance. The notion that we have of the West as, is, is, if you like, splintered, if not fractured. Since 1989, over various different issue areas, the role of international institutions, the relationship between diplomacy and intelligence gathering, security issues, interventions, uh, terrorism, and so on. And again, we'll touch on those issues during the course of the evening. But perhaps the provocation there is no longer very clear uh, what it's against, the West no longer seems very clear what it's for. So that's the, if you like, prefatory remarks uh, that serve as a background for the. Uh, the contributions that our three main speakers will talk to. Jacques Rupnik will begin. He will discuss the challenges to uh, the democratisation, capitalism and liberalist agenda of the West and question whether there has been a triumph of the West over the last uh, almost a generation. Mick Cox will follow and discuss whether the notion of the West is still meaningful in the post-1989 world. And then Mary Calder... Uh, we'll talk a bit about those revolutionary legacies of 1989 and put them in context, and think a bit about the Arab uprisings and also contemporary events in Ukraine. I've asked the speakers; it doesn't mean they'll do it, but I've asked them to speak for 10 minutes. Yeah. I said that we'll have plenty of time for uh, for you good people who've come out uh, to listen, but also hopefully to participate in this evening's discussions. And I'll be pesky and difficult if I need to be and prompt them on their way. But I hope uh, that we'll have a lively and interesting discussion. Chuck. <coughs>
1: You please open. Well thank you very, very much for the for the invitation. Is, is this okay? Um and I will try to stick to, to, to my ten minutes. Um, and I'm delighted also to be on the panel with you two because uh, we have clearly followed on parallel tracks uh, Somewhat, we like to think we inspired you, Jack. You, you probably, you probably did. Uh, you probably did. Uh, 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 the inspiration was uh, 1989 <laughs> itself, of course. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the one thing one has to say in an academic environment that. Uh, no academics had predicted. I mean, this is an, a 1989 is a great invitation to modesty in social sciences. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. nobody had predicted. Apart
0: from and. The uh, yeah. Randall You're Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay yogi, the
1: broad generalization is sorry. true. The yogi Barrow. Uh, I mean, Quiet uh, down, we will yeah. find two and or three. Uh, <laughs> uh, but. Um, it's true social sciences didn't predict it, though they had no shortage of knowledgeable arguments after the fact mm. to prove that it was absolutely inevitable. <laughs> so uh, that's the first observation. The second, and this is something that Mary and I share, I think, in 1989, was not just an, an, an academic endeavor for us, it was, it was I think, something uh, we, in one capacity or another, had been involved with, and it was a culmination of something, so this is why we're still at it in a way, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, uh, third, uh, third sort of introductory remark is the interesting thing is how the um, narrative of 1989 has changed, and this is actually why that book came, uh, came about. Uh, and uh, the first time I really uh, uh, was confronted with this was on the 10th anniversary of 1989 November 99 in Prague at the Prague Castle, Václav Havel inviting all the main protagonists and the scene went something like this Uh, starts George Bush we did it, we triumphed Uh, end of Cold War etc and what a wonderful achievement Ronald Reagan, myself etc, Okay, that was a Broad uh, picture, satisfaction on all counts. Then came Maggie Thatcher. You know, me and Ronald Reagan, the idea of the free market. We defeated the state-run socialist economy. We basically ran them into the ground. And, and you know, and that idea of a free economy, basis of a free society. That's the idea that triumphed. Uh, then came Helmut Kohl. Well. Uh, <coughs> we contributed to the reunification of Europe (laughs) by reunifying Germany in a peaceful, democratic manner. And this was the core of what followed for the reunification uh, of uh, Europe. Francois Mitterrand was already dead, but his widow was there. She was was a kind of uh, eccentric moment in that scene where everybody was claiming victory. Uh, She warned the audience against the dangers, as she said, of another softer totalitarianism that is coming about and that is the totalitarianism of the globalised market. So it was a kind of cold shower on this sort of self celebration by everybody. But of course immediately this was picked up by Lech Valenza, who said, you know, I hear that you did Come on, we started it. I mean, without sorry, Darnosh, without 1980, that was the first nail in the coffin of the communist system, and there would be no fall of the Berlin Wall without uh, without us. Gorbachev, uh, uh, can I say? What do I hear? I hear I've been defeated. I've been the victors, I vanquished. I thought 1989 was about ending the cold war and the mentality of the cold war and the kind of uh, 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 yeah the categories in which uh, 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 but i see that you are still thinking uh, along those lines etc etc and he eventually had this uh, incredible and he was very indignant very upset he spoke uh, he could, uh, nobody could stop him and uh, he had eventually a, a sentence uh where says and sort of this is where he was saying you know i <laughs> you think you did it (laughs) you may as well look in my direction as well Uh, uh, he said and I'm paraphrasing this is not an exact quote I gave them freedom without asking them what they would do with it and that was both I think a a, a, a profound uh, sentence of course a sentence that you don't expect for somebody who is supposed to run an empire Um, so um, you know if you quote that to a Chinese he thinks <laughs> you know, that's only the proof <laughs> what a fool he was and, and the Russians deserve the fate. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so this is just to say that in a nutshell you had there 10 years after you know different versions of what had happened different people trying to claim credit for it and uh, the you know the great moment of 1989 was no longer discussed actually what it contributed, but it was rather who, <laughs> who was the beneficiary, who was the winner, who were the losers, uh, that was the thing. Uh, Ten years or 15 years on, our debate has uh, moved on and not only do we discover, as has been pointed out by our chairman, uh, that there are different meanings of, of 1989. <coughs> Caroline Postelvina is not with us, but she's a specialist on Asia. And the way we started our book was uh, uh, precisely in discussion. She said, your view of 1989 is terribly Eurocentric. If you are in Japan, you don't feel the Cold War is quite over. There's still communist China, there's Vietnam, uh, there's divided Korea. You know. It anyway, uh, mm-hmm. so... the." Uh, Depending where you are, if you are in the Middle East, etc., you see uh, 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 1989 differently. So you can say this is an event that originated in Europe. You may perhaps add this may be the last major event that originated uh, in Europe, but with global, absolutely global uh, uh, repercussions uh, 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 ushering in a new uh, new, uh, international order. I will not dwell, partly because of time, on the various... Narratives, interpretations that were proposed—you know, ranging from the triumphalist uh, Fukuyama, the liberal democracy moment, then the uh, uh, then the um, more pessimistic take by by Huntington that this uh, you know closes one era but opens the era of the clash of sides. We may go into this in during the discussion if you so wish. But I, I, uh, what I what I suggest doing briefly, but very briefly, is. Um, Addressing three of the main um, items on the 1989 agenda, three of the main uh, issues, hopes, expectations, and uh, look what happened to them. Um, and and uh, they run something like this the, the, the three. The first, the democratic moment, of course. This is a democratic revolution. Uh, uh, this is a democratic moment. This is opening. This is the end of the short 20th century, the age of revolutions, end of totalitarian regimes, etc., etc. This is the age of democracy. So this is uh, uh, the democratic agenda. Uh, the second was related to that, the uh, uh, triumph of the... Uh, market economy over state sh- socialism and opening the age of uh, globalisation uh, basically uh, uh, this is the road to prosperity and modernity as seen from 1989 and the third assumption was that the unification the return to Europe that was a slogan of 1989 uh, in Prague in berlin in various places so the return to Europe the unification of Europe based on peace through interdependence, uh, that this uh, could become an inspiring model in other parts of the world and that this was, uh, in fact, uh, uh, yeah, the the in- invitation to a new international order based on uh, 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 such uh, uh, ideas. I think all three ideas were very powerful, very strong. This is why they had such global resonance uh, all three are in trouble, to put it very mildly. Uh, and uh, let me very briefly say why. Uh, well, the first, the democratic revolution, Mary will talk about it, th- therefore I can be even uh, 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 more uh, concise, but this is something that, uh, uh, that I believe is, was very important. If you ask me what is the most important legacy of 1989, for me, this is the idea's, uh, uh, of uh, you can't have you can't work for democracy without civil society you cannot hope to have uh, uh, a peaceful order in states <coughs> and between states without human rights etc. These were some of the ideas that brought about 1989 that were associated or that were thought to triumph in 1989 I say thought to triumph because some, sometimes perceptions can be uh, deceptive and that uh, this was the idea when ideas such as global civil society, Mary's uh, (laughs) prank, global spread of human rights, global governance, etc., etc. All these things were associated uh, somehow with that legacy. Uh, Then there was a second version of uh, this uh, democratic uh, agenda, um, a somewhat more muscular version, uh, associated with democracy promotion. That is basically everybody. Uh, uh, all nations aspire to democracy. There were only external constraints that were preventing it. Now that the constraints are no longer there, you know, we can sometimes give history a push, and uh, uh, so we did. You know, sometimes uh, this has been this has been an invitation to uh, um, a new kind of interventionism, uh, which became highly debated and controversial not only in the 90s but of course culminating with, uh, 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 with uh, Iraq uh, you, uh, you remember very well including particularly in this country so um, what, do, what have we got uh, since? We've got the rise of authoritarian capitalism China Russia, numerous other examples, Levitsky and they have this uh, book about Uh, competitive authoritarianism, what they call the regime, where you still have elections. I mean, you have elections, but you don't have democracy. I really understand it. The good news, to put it uh, in a nutshell, that democracy is making progress in places where we didn't expect it. Uh, You will be talking about the Arab Spring or whatever happened to that spring. Uh, uh, There were the color revolutions. There is Ukraine today. You, You have various... Yeah, you can have progress, Barma uh, is another place, you have progress of uh, democracy where you didn't expect, however the bad news is, democracy is in bad shape where we thought it was (laughs) uh, uh, consolidated and firmly uh, established and that that concerns uh, Europe and that concerns both populist nationalist backlash that we see in places that after 89 where the model showcases of democracy, like Orbán's Hungary today, or more importantly, what is happening to democracy in Europe today, particularly in the Eurozone and particularly in the country, in the southern part of, uh, uh, of Europe, where basically democracy squeezed between the two options, technocracy and populism. Those who want to impose the radical medicine at the expense of democratic legitimacy, those who call for uh, strong democratic <laughs> uh, 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 backing uh, but do not care about uh, uh, policies and you have really European democracy today, I mean endless seminars in my school uh, about the, la crise de la représentation démocratique, this is sort of a favorite topic of my, uh, of my colleagues so th- this is where we are, you know we wanted democracy, <coughs> we have it but it's in, guess what, it's in crisis uh, uh, the third uh, the, um, the second, the globalized market um, again, this was the, uh, uh, say, the, the assumed way to modernity and prosperity. Uh, it certainly was for some, uh, particularly in the emerging, uh, uh, um, new emerging pa- uh, countries, the so-called BRICS. But the, the financial crisis of 2008 um, um, basically uh, brought to the end a cycle that was based on uh, the mantra of uh, privatization and deregulation uh, of the markets. And related to that, two other mantras have been questioned. One, uh, important for Europeans, one was that markets and democracies uh, work uh, are closely, uh, closely uh, related. And the second is that uh, market, the common market fosters integration. Both assumptions have been uh, uh, undermined in recent years. Market and democracy, we can see how global financial markets can reduce the space for democratic government in, in a dramatic way, back to the populist versus technocracy argument. And uh, we see global financial markets not fostering integration, but putting apart uh, European integration. You know, the, the, the divide is no longer east-west. That is the post-99, post post-89 uh, agenda. The new situation is a divide uh, north-south. That is a dramatic divide. Incidentally, the countries of East Central Europe, which I'm very familiar with, identify with the north. The, you know, Polish foreign minister, I heard at Harvard saying, uh, you know, in dealing with the financial crisis, you know, Poland belongs to the north, you know, Slovak foreign ministers north. The Czechs, you know, follow the uh, German policy. So basically, you know, I've studied these countries for long enough to remember that they were Eastern Europe. <coughs> then they discovered Central Europe. The mm. idea was, you know, Milan Kunderas say central Europe. We are Central Europe. Don't call us Eastern Europe. We are Central Europe. We are the kidnapped West. After nineteen eighty nine Forget about Central Europe. That is only delaying us in our rush to the West. We want to be Western Europe. Okay, great. We become Europe. Uh, 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 now there is a crisis <laughs> and, and the North-South divide. We are Northern Europe. I reassure you, they are still, they are still the same countries. They haven't moved. Still the same people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, 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 the mental geography has been severely uh, uh, redesigned since 1989. That, uh, that is uh, uh, one way of putting it. But to conclude on that chapter, we can come back to a discussion. You may be familiar with uh, Danny Roderick's book, uh, uh, the, the, the Democratic Trilemma. I think that he, you know, his argument about how to square democracy, nation-state, and uh, uh, the global markets, basically uh, his conclusion is you can have only two, uh, uh, not all three. Unless, of course, you assume that there can be global governance, global... Uh, uh, democracy, global civil society, all the things we wanted to believe in 1989 uh, the final point I realize my time is running out uh, uh, and therefore I will uh, leave the economic argument there but f- simply to uh, conclude on the third point on um, on Europe and the post-89 uh, order, okay uh, the goal was to join Europe, to, to join the European Union uh, 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 the Balkans, the Ukrainians, still interested in that process, as we can observe every day. Uh, though the Europe, uh, though the European Union itself is in crisis, so not easy to expand at the periphery when the core is in doubt. Uh, that's uh, uh, that's uh, uh, one aspect. The second one is that the whole context of the post-89. Uh, uh, international order, uh, which will be uh, discussed uh, in, in, in a minute, uh, has changed. You know, post '89, the unipolar moment, as Krauthammer uh, called it. Well, uh, uh, that that was just that. You know, a moment. And and we have moved towards more multipolar, but not multilateral uh, 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 situation. The pivot to Asia recently, leading from behind in America. So that has changed, and that is important. Uh, for the international order. Secondly, uh, uh, the 89 ID, the primacy of human rights over sovereignty, uh, over state uh, sovereignty, well, you can say, yes, that ID has made inroads, has had consequences. Look at uh, the humanitarian interventions of the 1990s, you know, Bosnia, <coughs> Kosovo, uh, etc. But basically with Iraq, that ID has... Lost any uh, international support. You can say there is a remnant of it, which is uh, the responsibility to protect, uh, but we see in Syria (laughs) what has been made of the responsibility uh, uh, to uh, protect. So the idea of the EU model, the EU soft power, the normative power, all the literature, all the things that you have on your reading list, I'm sure, in the European courses, this is all very nice, except that in a world, in, in a world where the logic of power is being reasserted, the rise of the BRICS is, is accompanied by the return to the uh, logic of uh, power politics and that leaves the Europeans with a big question mark whether their uh, approach uh, 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 is still valid. So uh, 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 last word is uh, I started with the three uh, uh, 389 agendas, you know, democracy civil society, human rights, well we have it but it's in crisis uh, markets uh, Oh, the more open, the better, the more deregulated, uh, the most wonderful, dismantling the state. Yes, we have achieved all that. Guess what? The markets are in crisis and tearing the European project apart. Yes, we wanted to join Europe, and Europe has been unified, and the enlargement of the European Union is, of course, the main vector of that uh, uh, unification. Uh, but the European project itself is today uh, in crisis, so we need a rethink, not to reject uh, uh, 1989, but perhaps to see at what point some of the legacies of 1989 have been abandoned, discarded, overtaken by other agendas superimposed, and basically to discuss, to paraphrase Leszek Kolakowski, what is alive and what is dead in the 1989 ideas. Thank you. Okay,
2: thanks, George. Um, can I just pick up one or two points? Uh, and George has told me 10 minutes only. So, uh, being a Bolshe- Bolshevik, I'll be very disciplined here and take 25. Um, <laughs> on the question of prediction, as soon as Jacques said nobody predicted it, and sadly, Mary said, oh, it's E.P. E. Thompson. That means a Mary, by the way. Very predictable. And, uh, then, 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 and then George rushed in with a guy called Randall Collins, the famous American sociologist. It's, it's certainly true that certain individuals got it right in some sense. So you might even say Ronald Reagan got it right, but let's, let's not go into that one, shall we? He may have understood it better than some people, actually, oddly enough. Actually, I, I kind of, I'd rather put it in a slightly different way, although I've written about why we, didn't, why we didn't predict it. I think one of the reasons we didn't get it, broadly speaking, right, those certain individuals did. I actually don't think most people wanted it to come to an end. I kind of take a rather more functional view of the nature of the Cold War system, that whatever the contradictions it represented, either for the Soviet side or for the American side, most people were happy enough to live within the framework of that particular system. It kept some kind of order in Europe. Let's be honest, it kept the Germans down, to use the old definition of what the function, one of the functions of NATO was. It kept a management relationship between the Sioux troops, Mary, Mary wrote about that. It didn't mean that there was no conflict. There was a contest, as Fred Halliday used to say, but, and, it wasn't, and I don't think it was imagined. But I do think there was a sense in which most people didn't anticipate it, because no, nobody was looking forward to it happening, because most people, I think, in the main, in the over, overwhelming main, kind of thought the, systems, the systems would endure you were married but you were not the world you were not the world um, so I think the, the, I think actually in a very odd way uh, you mentioned dear old Mikhail Segobit Gorbachev at the very beginning there uh, one of the best books on 1989 still was written by a good colleague of mine who works in Quebec Jacques Levesque and he wrote a wonderful book many years ago which I still think in some fundamental way has not been surpassed where he said it's the unintended liberation the unintended consequence. So it's not even quite certain that Gorbachev got what he wanted What he ended up with at the end of 1989 with Mr. Schaus- Mr. and Mr. Schaus- 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 against the wall, the wall coming down, German unification, the whole collapse of the socialist alternative, as Rudolf Barrow used to call it, the alternative in the old days. I'm not sure he wanted that either. So there's a kind of series of, an, A, most people are kind of prepared to live within this system for all sorts of, reasons, including the United States. And most people, even in Gorbachev himself, didn't intend it to come. One of the really ironic aspects of the dynamics of the end of the Cold War, in, in, at least in 1991, where, in fact, you have an American president, uh, the senior Bush, going to Kiev, a historic city, of course, today, and what does he tell the Ukrainians? Cut it out. Stop all this self-determination stuff. You know, I mean, you know, just cool it, man. Stability's OK. Reform the USSR. So... That kind of told you something about there's a, there was an order there within which many of the superpowers, including the NATO, so could participate and, in a sense, accept the kind of logic of bipolarity and, and all the rest. Now, uh, the second broad point I want to make bri- briefly, George, is this, and I, I again really want to focus in and, and, and really emphasise the point that Jack, we do need a true international history of the of, of what actually happened in '89, 1991. We kind of either tell it as one, two kinds of stories, if we live where we live. Um, we either tell it as a European story, the war came down, blah, blah, blah. The Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, Polish elections in 1989, June, etc. Blah, blah, blah. We kind of tell it as a European story. Then we go into whole debates about unification and what the Americans did and didn't do, etc., etc., etc. And we've got to get away from that. It, obviously, in some sense, that's where the Cold War began, if you want to go back to Yalta, if you want to go back that far. Uh, and that's where it had to end in the end. It did end there, that's for sure. It doesn't matter. German unification is crucial in this. But we do need a much wider narrative. You know, the perspectives of Germany are not the perspectives of Korea. <laughs> the collapse of East Germany doesn't lead to the collapse of North Korea. And by the way, what does China derive from the end of the Cold War in Europe? Communist authoritarian rule and the re-establishment of that communism. What the Chinese did at the time is entirely a, a relationship to the collapse of communist rule in, in, in East Central Europe at the time. They, they saw it then and they still talk about it today as Arnie Western West Ham and others brilliantly analysed you know, as a disaster even though in some ways they may have even contributed to the disintegration of the USSR itself. So we've got to avoid Eurocentrism, but we've also got to avoid another deviation, I think maybe even a worse one, dare not say this to, to this room, I hope there's some Americans in the room, is what I call Americocentrism. If you think Eurocentrism's bad, try Americocentrism on the end of the Cold War and what happened in 1991. I mean, whenever I go to the States, Arnie goes there a lot, a lot of friends go there a lot, talk to American colleagues, they're wonderful guys, they read all sorts of stuff, but it's a very focused American perspective on the world. And it comes into the way in which I think a lot of American historians and politicians today still reflect our, uh, as an American, whether you want to say Reagan did it, whether you want to say NATO did it, whether you want to say... The second, the second Reagan did it, namely the negotiator rather than the confrontation. There's a very American story out there, which I think fits very much into an American narrative of its own identity, of its own power, of its own position in the world. And drawing lessons from that has been in a very American story. There's a lot of stories to be told. There's a Russian story to be told in this, by the way. And there's, a, there's also a Chinese story. There's an East German story to be told in this, the one, the one that ultimately didn't work out for the point of view of the East Germans. The basic thesis I want to put forward, however, is I hope a simple one, is that the events of 89 to 1991, which I take as the round of the end of the Cold War, including the collapse of the Soviet Union within all that, produces two entirely different set of consequences, two entirely different set of consequences. It may be a question of timing. It's the kind of the, the, the beautiful, lo- the beauty of history and its ironies, if you want to use the term the ironies of history. But the irony is that 89 and 91 produces two entirely different sets of consequences. The first set of consequences it produces is the one that you outlined, Jacques, namely, it's a triumph of the West. It produces, firstly, the end of the bipolar order, the emergence of the unipolar world, of the United States. You know, you, you know the rest of the story, you can even hum the tune. Uh, and basically, many people bought into this notion of unipolarity, not just the madman who you mentioned, um, but also a whole bunch of liberal theorists like John Eikenberry, a very good guy, a whole bunch of other realist theorists like Bill Walfour, without dropping too many names, that's one of my problems. But nonetheless, the notion of a unipolar world was really, obviously it was a byproduct of the end if, if the bipolar system ends, then you end up with unipolarity, It's kind of logic it, and there was something to that equally the second consequence which of course represents to this notion of the western being triumph is the market triumphs you know if you like the new phase of globalization opens up the doors are broken down the first and the second world are no longer making any sense nor indeed does the third world make any more sense the world opens up into a single market economy we all have to play by the same rules of the game and uh, this, in a sense, is the triumph of markets. And this, of course, gets theorized, conceptualized into all sorts of arguments about the future of the world. The world will always be markets. Socialism will always fail. Markets will always win. I mean, that was the kind of simple argument which comes out. The man who ran the Federal Reserve so well for so many years uh-huh, um, argued that point in his, own, in his own autobiography. That what 1989 represented for him was basically the triumph of markets. Markets always win. And then thirdly and finally, it led to the creation or beginnings of the creation of a liberal world order, democracy, human rights and and all the rest going to. Now, that is not untrue. I mean, that's not, you know, I don't think we can can debate and dispute each of those three grand Western claims. But there's something to that. You can't entirely, can't entirely dismiss that. But if you like what I call the irony of history, each of the, each of each of the, all of those aspects, in a sense, get reversed in a dialectical fashion. I haven't used the word dialectical for a long time. I feel much better. That each of the dimensions which produces this Western triumph also produces a series then of major problems as well, major contradictions within the system. In a funny sort of way, the West wins the Cold War, but by winning the Cold War in the way in which it wins the Cold War, it then sets off a series of new fundamental contradictions in the international system, which we are beginning to cope with and deal with presently. Firstly, when Arnie and I set out, I West had down here, when we first set out to establish a Cold War Studies Centre in the LSE some years ago, one of the things we were trying to do was actually think through where did 9-11 come from, in, in a way. I mean, you know, history is not history, history is present. And trying to work through the... In a way, it's very difficult not to think through that there is a kind of a, okay, a broken line relationship, but some kind of relationship that leads you from the Soviet intervention in 1979, the Soviet retreat, Leaving, leaving Afghanistan in the 1990s to 9-11. You win, but you end up producing a kind of a uh, 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 Frankenstein, isn't it? It's too easy an image, but you end up producing something out of the very victory and out of the very Cold War you've fought for 20 years, and you've won. Um, the second thing I would argue too is I, th- I actually trace the origins of the financial crisis to the very triumph of the market, or the apparent triumph of the market back in... in in 1989 and 1991. Now, I know at this wonderful school of ours there's lots of economists who would tell me that this is absolute bullshit and that in essence the cause of the crisis is the following 37 factors, (laughs) uh, none of which I really understand or really care two tosses about, to be perfectly honest. Howard Davis wrote actually quite a good book on who caused the Cold War, except Howard, of course, uh, or who caused the the financial crisis, rather. I kind of take a larger view of this I take a larger view. I think what the end of the Cold War produced was what I would call, and somebody else has used the term, market fundamentalism. Socialism will always fail, markets will always succeed. You kind of, and this whole argument that you discount risk, I think goes back to the failure of socialism. It goes back, to well, actually existing socialism as it then was. How could you think that something which had so triumphed, which had so overcome the enemy, which had forced the barbarians to retreat and fly a white flag, which essentially you can think of the end of the Cold War as being, which had produced this, could ever go into something like 2008. It simply wasn't part. It wasn't part of the scenario. In other words, to use the great old Greek word of hubris, 1989 produced huge market hubris, and and, and in a way, I think you can find this in some of the writings at the time. We won, and because we won, we can't actually have a crisis. We'd ridden it out of the the scenario. The third thing, and here I'll end, George, because I want to throw it over very, very quickly, because I'll I'll try and be disciplined for once in my life. Not very often I do this. I'd actually say, too, that if I'm actually asked the question in the the long term, the muse of history, the owl of Minerva, flies at midnight and looks backwards, as always, can't look anywhere else. Um, Who won the Cold War? China won the Cold War. Um, From the point of view of 1989, that looks like an absurd thing to say. From the point of view of 1991, it looks ridiculous even towards the end of 1999 you have good guys you know, talking about don't worry about China too much don't, get, don't overdo it, Jerry Siegel wrote an interesting article in Foreign Affairs does China really matter etc 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 what I want to kind of argue is that in some fundamental way, perspective is everything here, from when you judge it is as much important as who you are and where you're sitting, it does seem to me if we look in the long view of the great owl of Minerva flying at midnight as the great Hegel put it If we look at it from that point of view, then looking at it in that perspective, then it does seem to me that 1989 and 1991 may seem to be representing more of a victory for China than anybody else. After all, the Soviet Union went. And although the Chinese today decry the collapse of the Soviet Union, that really does open up huge space for them geopolitically. Huge space for them geopolitically. There is no other rival. Um, it also opens up the space for them both to be repressive at home, which then lays the foundation for the conditions of them going for the economic reforms they then go for in the 1990s. And then, of course, opens up the possibility for an ideological drive towards the market through the World Trade Organization, which it joined, which I think is one of the great turning points Two, the three great turning points in Chinese history over the last 10 years, I think, was one, the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. The second was the Asian financial crisis which allowed China to take enormous advantage of, of, of Asian problems to build its own position of strength. And the third one was 201 and the, and the World Trade Organization. So my thesis really, George, is a very simple one. It may be completely wrong, but I think, in essence, what I want to try and argue here this evening, that thinking over the long term, the 20, 25 years since then, that what, what those great and extraordinary and unpredictable events in the, in the very main, and unwanted events, actually, in many, many ways have produced is two entirely different set of circumstances. So in a sense, we have to bring back dialectics if we really want to understand the last 25 years. Thank you very much indeed.
1: Cheers.
3: Well, I have to to start by saying something about how E.P. Thompson predicted the end of the
2: <laughs> I, knew, I knew, I knew. It's something
3: I always tell my students, I actually, it, yeah. because he gave a lecture in 1992, and for those who don't know, E.P. Thompson was a historian who focused on history from below and wrote this wonderful book, The History of the English Working Classes. And he said, now we've got all these changes. It was the beginning of the peace movement. It was the beginning growth of the opposition in Eastern Europe. It'll all happen very quickly. There won't be a long time as the glaciers slowly melt. It will all happen quickly. Nations will become unglued from their alliances. We'll travel without maps for a while. It's an extraordinary quote. I'm sorry I didn't bring it to read you. But I always tell it because I think, why did he... Why was he so prescient? And I think he looked at the world through a different lens. He didn't look at the world through the lens of great powers and their actions, which most social scientists did. People who studied the Soviet Union, studied the Politburo and how it was changing, they had pictures of May Day, they didn't study social change. And the reason that he was able to predict it, and the reason people who were involved in the opposition, like me and Jack, who, we knew change was coming, we didn't know how or what, but I think by the end of the 80s it was clear. That things were coming and it was because we were looking through a different lens. And that's really what I want to say this evening. I thought what I would talk about was the differences between 1989 and 2011. And by 2011, I'm taking a stretched understanding rather like Mick just has yeah. on 1989. I mean the Arab Spring, I mean the spread of Occupy, and I also mean what's happening now in Ukraine. <laughs> um, And I don't actually... I was about to say lots of the things that both Jack and Mick have said, that I think 1989 was a very optimistic period. It was the spread of democracy throughout the world. If you like, globalisation was about the spread of democracy, not just about markets. And it was about the opening up of Eastern Europe. And I don't think it was... I don't really agree with Mick, Mick about the triumph of the West, because... As he knows, I don't see it so much as, um, you know, if there's a bipolar system. It, It was a shift from a polar system to a more multilateral system. It was, I think, something different was happening, and I'm not sure the US was that keen on it, actually. But it was all about moving towards a multilateral idea, moving towards cosmopolitanism, the idea of law based on individuals, on human rights new layers of global governance a new impetus for Europe as a peace project all of these things which Jacques has talked about was what 1989 was about uh, and, and unlike Furet who said there's nothing new this was all terribly new but it was new at European and global levels it was the end of organising relations by threats and power and so on so so um, So what I'm trying to say is what what happened after 89 was not so much a power shift, but a change in the whole way power is exercised and order is organised. Um, So why... And and just take two examples. Look at the different way the world reacted to Bosnia, to how it's reacting now to Syria. Um, All sorts of new innovations came, of which I think in the long term perhaps the most important is the international criminal court it's been misused it's been ineffective but nevertheless the idea that you have an international court for crimes against humanity for human rights is a huge step in the development of world order so what why has 2011 been different that's the question I wanted to ask um, you know, why it has some successes, Tunisia is obviously one case, but we've seen repression in violence in Egypt, we've seen this terrible war in Syria, and now we've got this alarming situation in Ukraine, in Crimea. So what what are the reasons that it's different? And I have a few explanations. I mean this is very much thinking off the top of my head and no doubt you'll come back and have others. And they're overlapping. I think the first thing about 1989, which we didn't see at the time, at least I didn't, was that communist leaders were rather happy to exchange their political positions for economic gain. They saw people in the West making lots of money, and they thought, well, actually, I'd rather be a rich person than a political leader. (laughs) And um, today, I think both in the Middle East and in Ukraine... Uh, A political position is both a political position and an economic position. And so leaders have a tremendous vested interest in staying in power, not just to keep their money, but to prevent their corruption from being revealed, as it has been in the case of Ukraine. Secondly, um, I think, the 1989 revolutionaries were led by the 68th generation. Um, they were led by people who'd been involved maybe in the Prague Spring or maybe in the student movement, and they were 20 years older than the current lot. They were able to translate uh, revolutionary demands into politics. I think what we see in, in the Middle East and elsewhere is a huge dearth of leadership. I think this was especially true of Poland and Czechoslovakia, actually. So that's my second argument. But I also think this argument about the 68 generation also applied to the West, that there was a new generation, not the post-Thatcher, post-Reagan generation, New Labour, the Democrats. I mean, yes, there were all sorts of things wrong with them, but they were in a mood to respond to much of this, to try to build a new European architecture, to try to build a new international architecture. They had been they'd been developed in a framework of discussion about human rights, the environment, gender, all these new issues of post-68. And they saw it as a moment when they could put these into practice. And of course, subsequently, the legacy of 9-11 pushed us in a much more (coughs) geopolitical uh, direction. And I think today what you see is that Western leaders are much more ambivalent about revolution than they were in 1989. In 1989, they were happy to see what was happening. Certainly in the Middle East, I think they've been really ambivalent and slow on the take in relation particularly to Egypt and Syria. Um, and you know, what I think happened was that even though, of course, they were responding to 89, even though they did have new ideas, they didn't go that far. <laughs> they didn't do enough, I think, that they, they had huge opportunities in the 1990s, and I think they failed to seize it, not least to allow the sort of le- the inertia of Cold War institutions like NATO instead of creating a pan-European security system that at that time could have included Russia, and we might have been in a very different situation today, uh, in the case of Ukraine. But then the final one that I really want to mention, which I think is hugely important, is, of course, the economic situation. And actually, you know, I think neoliberalism, it wasn't the triumph of Western market, it was the triumph of market fundamentalism. The West wasn't fundamentalist market uh, until maybe the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. So it was generally the triumph of market fundamentalism rather than a Western triumph and I think if you think about 89 at that time human development indicators were rather high in Eastern Europe it was a rather economically stable I mean even though they wanted consumer goods nevertheless there was a sort of basic safety net and that wasn't so different at that time in the Middle East either But now, after 20 years, 25 years of market fundamentalism, I think there are two consequences which I want to talk about. One is, of course, the huge increase in inequality within countries and poverty. And that's Mm -hmm. very important in the Middle East. Uh, And it makes things much less stable, it makes things much more volatile, much more vulnerable to populism. (coughs) um, And it's terribly difficult to solve. But the other link to that has been that neoliberalism, because it was all about market fundamentalism, didn't change the structures within which the market operate. And the consequence has been in continued dependence on oil and a huge increase in the financial sector in relation to other sectors. And what that has done has, to create, has been to create rentier states everywhere. Um, And what (coughs) raunché states mean is what my colleague Alex DeWall calls the political marketplace. Politics, and that's even, I think, true in this country, is increasingly about access to the state, because that's the way to get access to rents and money, rather than access to the state to carry out a political programme. And that's the real problem that we have. These are the politicians that are supposed to translate popular demands, and they're not interested. And that, I think, Mm. is the biggest problem uh, that we have at the moment. And of course, none of these problems, the the dependence on finance, the dependence on oil, inequality, can be solved in national ways. They can only be solved in global ways. we can only deal with, you know, so that actually democracy, like Danny Roderick, as I'm pointing out, says stymied by our failure to deal with financial disequilibria, our failure to deal with global redistribution, our failure to deal with climate change and the need for alternative resources. So what does this argument mean for thinking about the future? Well, it does seem very bleak, (laughs) Um, <laughs> as I <laughs> said, are... um, uh, you know, I think particularly dangerous. It's not just that these revolutions have resulted in war and revolution. I think what's particularly dangerous is the tendency, which I think we already saw in Bosnia, actually, to reframe democracy movements as sectarian. So we've seen how Egypt is reframed as Islamist versus secular. Syria is reframed as Sunnis versus Alawis. Ukraine is constantly being reframed. This was a movement about corruption and human rights. It was not a movement about the Western Catholics versus the Eastern Orthodox. And those kind of sectarian framings get mapped onto geopolitical ...framings in ways I think that are terribly, (coughs) terribly dangerous. Mm. Um, So that's, uh, you know, and and I'm so struck by the way, the time-honoured way of dealing with dissent... ...and I think again about the First World War actually, Mm. is to provoke violence and war. And that's what Putin's doing. If you ask me why Putin is in Crimea, it's because he's terrified that what happened in Ukraine will happen in Russia. Mm. That's the main reason... So that's a terribly gloomy picture. Are there any hopes? Is the <laughs> <Please>. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think the story's not over yet. No, of course, it's not. So that's where I come in to sort of say something to end on something more positive. That's the way that's um, I do think a whole new generation have participated in all these events and things. And the, if I think about the '68 generation, it wasn't what happened in 68 that was important, it was what happened afterwards. The kind of lives... It changed people's lives in very important ways and it led to deep changes in society as a result of those changes. And so it's much too early. What, what those young people have been doing, they've been experimenting with new forms of democracy, they've been doing all kinds of interesting... Uh, um, new <coughs> innovations, and we don't yet know what that will lead to in their lives. So that's the first positive point. Um, and um, there are a few examples where it was okay. Tunisia is our shining example. <laughs> Maybe Morocco, too, even though there wasn't a revolution. Um, of course we're seeing this terrible, tragic impasse in Syria, but I'm very interested in Syria, and what's extraordinary is the way those people who are in the protest movement have now become civil society groups trying to negotiate local <coughs> ceasefires, doing all sorts of incredibly brave things. <coughs> so I think... So what i come to the conclusion, it's, it's not that optimistic, but I just think there's a real responsibility on us as people... To try to respond to these innovations and to think in new ways what all of this might mean in the future and how we could respond to these new inventions, whether it's alternative currencies in Greece or ceasefires in Syria that are going on. Mm